Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, coordinator for faculty programs. In this episode, I speak with Susan Harbage Page, assistant professor of women's and gender studies. In our conversation, Professor Page describes her role in her interdisciplinary department and her experience as a faculty fellow at the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. She also discusses her current artistic project of creating an anti-archive of found objects at the U.S.-Mexico border. Because it seems like the women in gender studies, they have folks from different disciplines, and it's pretty, is it, in terms of your background? We're sort of the uniquely interdisciplinary department on campus, I think. So, Are you the only artist in that mm -hmm. department? What do you feel you bring to the to the table? Uh, <laughs> let's see. What do I bring to the table? I think I, I think I bring another way to look at things and ask questions, and um, another way to empower students to make issues that they think are important visible on campus mm -hmm. and in their lives. And because um, sometimes I think we have students who think they don't have a voice or what they're thinking about maybe other people aren't thinking about and I think in my classes we sort of explore that and then they find a way to make it visible and have a conversation about it and create a dialogue and it's not really about coming up with a set of answers but it's about the investigation and the critical thinking and then synthesizing it into something visual. So it seems like maybe in your department with that kind of interdisciplinary cohort how does that translate to maybe your experience in the in the fellows room is that kind of a similar it is a similar thing I think um, in my department and with the fellows I feel like everyone's really um, sophisticated and committed and doing really good investigative work and mm -hmm. care about their students and so both places I find that and I think the conversations in my department and in um, at the IAH help me personally and I think my colleagues complicate what we're looking at and we're all looking at different things but what I have seen over time is the way we investigate the questions we ask the context within we work is actually more similar than we might think we get siloed I think in different departments and sometimes we don't have those conversations but for right. me those are the most interesting conversations and they're the ones where I learn about my work and I think it's important to be able to communicate your work to somebody who's not in your discipline right. and so that's that has been helpful for me especially this semester with my work when I presented my work I, I realized there were some things that I thought were being perceived one way and then I realized oh that's not how they're perceived by somebody in a different discipline and it's gonna really help me move the work forward I think Focusing on, on your work on the U.S.-Mexico border, can you talk a little bit about what attracted you to that region? I saw the YouTube clip, and it mentioned you, you first went there in 2007. Is that correct? I actually first went there in 1996. Okay. I, I went to visit a family friend, and because I'd seen this impromptu shrine there, there was a Virgin Mary that somebody had found in the rust on their fender. And there was this whole kind of shrine in this little town of Elsa, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I, that was my first sort of journey there. I went to look at that shrine and see how people were 
creating this reliquary and sort of giving it power and what it meant in context. And I went to the border and I crossed the border. And so that was my first sort of initial contact with the area. And then I went back in 1997, really for the first time, to photograph and walk the border. And I'd been thinking about borders a lot at that time because we live in North Carolina. We have the fastest growing Latino population in the United States. I've had experiences teaching um, ESL learners, and I really learned a lot in that experience here in North Carolina about what it means to show up without an ID, to not be able to get to a class, to not have transportation, not be able to drive, be afraid that you're going to be stopped, not be able to ask questions at your job, et cetera, et cetera. And I had mm -hmm. to confront some of my stereotypes about that. Like, right. And then early on, when I was young, my mother took me on a camping trip when I was 10, and we crossed 23 borders in Europe. And my mom found out in 1969 that Eastern, the Eastern Bloc countries were opened and that we could go there. So she took us to Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, which were amazing experiences for a 10-year-old. You cross a border, and on one side there's great wealth and one language and food in the shops, and you eat one thing and you act one way, and then you cross this imaginary line mm -hmm. that's guarded by young men with guns and maybe a wooden slat that goes up and down that's red and white or something like that. And Anyways, you cross into another territory, and there's not food and the stores are empty and the clothes are different and the language is different. I learned a lot about borders at that right. and foreign policy actually at that moment in time and on one of those borders I was held we crossed into Romania at night and it was um, a remote crossing and we were held and taken out of our car and locked up and there were soldiers with guns and, and they went... Ten? I was 10, oh. and there were no cell phones, and there <laughs> yeah. were no computers, and it was dark, and it was scary. They went through all of our stuff in the car. They sprayed off our car. And so that, I think, for me was a pivotal moment. Like, uh, I wasn't a part of either country there. And I've always traveled the world as a privileged soul, as a first-class citizen. And so I think that's really important to my work on the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm, um, I am a part of this nation state, and I do care about what we're doing on our border. I was really sort of, I guess, I took the step to actually go to the border to walk the border when I heard on NPR a statistic that said 20% more women and children die crossing the U.S.-Mexico border than men. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, why is that? And so I just wanted to see for myself. I did find out that it's because most women have might have a baby and a coyote, a person who smuggles humans across the border, will leave you behind if, because it threatens the whole group and the Border Patrol oh, might wow. find the whole group if your baby's crying. Mm -hmm. Or women often dehydrate faster and they are just not as strong and so physically. So they might get left behind on that long journey. and. I used to think it was a journey sort of, oh, across the Mexican border into the United States, but it's not. It's a much longer journey. I find passports from Cuba and Honduras, and if you think about coming north from Honduras as a young yeah. person, it's a long, long journey. So your project on the, on the borderlands, you, you reference it as the anti-archive. So one thing, I, my question I had was, 
what's your definition of the archive and why is there a need for the anti-archive? It's kind of a big question. It's a big question. I think archives are places where we create memory and history and remembrance. And I think often those archives are put together by people who are in power and have privilege, who are part of the dominant culture, who have the means to store stuff in their attic, who, um, you know, we kind of all exist in this patriarchal gendered world, and sometimes it's the words of men that we save versus the, you know, women just haven't always had access to writing as much as men have. So I think they're complicated things, and sometimes we save a particular viewpoint. And I wanted to make an archive that was in opposition to that, because I knew that no one was looking at this stuff on the border, that I was annually making a pilgrimage to the border to, to pick up and collect and photograph. And I would photograph this stuff you know, I would walk the border and I saw all these objects and they were separated from their maker, but they still had really powerful stories attached. I mean, I would find a woman's red bra or someone's toothbrush and they all have various meanings. I mean, that toothbrush that I find on the border, you know, I find it and it's muddy and it's on the riverbank and I don't know whose it is, but I also know that I've never seen anybody's toothbrush um, in a gutter in Chapel Hill. It's just a very right. private, personal object, and it's a symbol of self-care. It's somebody who's taking a journey north, hopefully to a better life, and they're brushing their teeth on the way. And I like to think about that part of it, but then I find it, and it's in the mud. And then I also know, after walking the border many years, that it's a sign that somebody's been picked up because mm -hmm. the Border Patrol will make you empty and discard anything that's, like, short and hard because they see it as a weapon. So it has these different points of perspective, which I think are very interesting. And I also photograph these objects in place, and I see them sort of as portraits, a portrait Traditionally, in photography, is something that really talks about the past. I also see them at the same time as an icon, which really talks about the present. And then for me as a photographer, it's a, my work is a pushback against the philosophy and the history of documentary photography, which is a history of a lot of privileged, mostly male photographers coming into a space photographing people, not always knowing their names, right. and then using that. Um, and I think many of them were well-intentioned. So anyways, from the beginning of this project, I wanted to explore this space. Um, and it is complicated, and um, I'm torn in many ways about the project. It's not an easy project for me to do, but I didn't want to photograph people who were crossing. I just didn't want to take that privilege, and I didn't. I just think there are other people who do that, and I wanted to give people another way into that space. And it's kind of this imaginary space. Mm -hmm. um, so those objects, they they don't have meaning until we kind of find the story behind them and place that meaning on it. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, so but, I mean, we do that with everything. Yeah, and like we all have a toothbrush, so right. we all can relate to that object. And mm -hmm. but if you've crossed the border, as one of my friends told me, you know, it reminds him of actually taking that journey. So 
that's the other part of my work. It's a, it's a, it's an archive. It's, I used to think it was objective. It's not objective at all. Mm -hmm. It's very subjective. But I am interested in what's happening on the border. I look at it over time. I find bullets and different things. I find holes where people have hidden drugs. And so there are different clues to what's happening on the border. And um, I, I think it's something that we need to look at. And it's changing and it's becoming increasingly increasingly militarized. I had this idea to make an archive of the objects and I'm just doing it. And Did you realize it would take this long? It'd be this long of a process? Or? No, I had no idea. I thought I was going for the first year and then I went back and then I started doing these performances where I helped, I worked with a community of artists to build an impromptu bridge across the river out of inner tubes as a protest to the building of the wall and all the money that's being spent on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I did a piece where I think I think at, over the years my uh, investigations have become more complicated and I reflect it back to myself a little bit more. I did a piece recently where I took my mother's teacups. I um, saw that. Yeah. So they're my mother's teacups. Um, my ancestors are all from... England and Wales, and she brought them from England in 1969 to Ohio, and then when we migrated south, she brought them to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then at some point, I took them, brought them, she gifted them to me, and I brought them to Chapel Hill, and then I took them to the border and photographed them right on the riverbank of the Rio Grande to talk about the idea that you know, most of us here in the United States are immigrants. We have an immigrant history, and I think we should think more generously yeah. about that. And somebody down the line crossed that border for us. Yeah, somebody. Yeah, somebody crossed the border. And also, if the rules that we we have in place now were in place when my family came, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of implications. And yeah, that was. A, for me, an interesting process to bring those teacups there and, and think about my history and hopefully get other people to investigate that as well. Because sometimes I think we come here and after, we come anywhere and after a generation or two, we're like, okay, I got mine, just <laughs> not enough. In the next episode of the IH podcast, I continue my conversation with Assistant Professor Susan Harbage Page. You can view some examples of her work on our website at ih.unc.edu. Be sure to visit our website for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. Check out past and future episodes of this podcast on our website or subscribe to the IH podcast on iTunes to download episodes automatically to your computer or mobile device. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IH underscore UNC.